0: How are you this morning? Everybody got all your uh, Thanksgiving shopping done? Amen? Got the food ready to go? Or are you waiting to the last minute? Who's waiting to the last minute? Raise your hand. Honest people in the church today. Praise God. All right. right. We'll take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15, and we are going to look at the parable of the lost coin today, and um, very interesting, the timing of... of uh, when God brings us to certain passages, I'm a, I'm a firm believer uh, that God times His Word perfectly for the needs of the church, amen? Anybody else share that opinion? And the fact that today, uh, to this evening, is the, um, is the last night for our uh, evangelistic efforts, uh, at least until the first of the year, that this parable would fall today to me is, uh, is divinely ironic. And so it, I think, hope it helps you. As uh, the Thanksgiving season comes next week, as well, I don't know about you, but um, the Hazard home was tense, to say the least, uh, during Thanksgiving. I'm not talking about the Hazard home of today, although there is some tenseness there. Amen. There's always, whenever there's teenagers around, there's always tenseness. But in my family growing up, uh, there was uh, there was tenseness all the time, uh, mostly because of me. If you can believe that, can you believe that? But mostly because, but because of me, whether or not I was going to show up and who I was going to bring with me and what state of mind I was going to be in when I came home. Uh, so this parable today for you, uh, maybe you have a lost coin that comes home uh, during Thanksgiving. I want you to think of it that way as you, as you hear this parable this morning, uh, that Christ speaks to you and, and helps you to understand that you have, there's, there's a call on your life uh, as a Christian. There's a call on your life to witness to those that don't know Jesus. And I will tell you this, and I know this will get a hearty amen, that witnessing to family is harder than a total stranger. Can you amen that? Absolutely one of the most difficult things that you will do is witness to your family that are not believers. And so as we go through this, I hope that you'll listen carefully to the parable and to the words of Jesus. And I'm going to give you some, some thoughts that you can go away with today that hopefully will help you. As always, I like to build up to the passage. It's a, it's a fairly short passage, a fairly easy passage to interpret. Um, also, gave you some. I give you some thoughts today from a from a, a, a once a, a preacher from another continent named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Does anybody know who that is? Okay, I got got you some thoughts from him today as well. So you know, I, I dug deep in the well. Amen. Dug deep in the well. Uh, chapter fifteen is one of the most well known portions of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 15. These parables are known the world over. Uh, Even people that are not believers and don't believe in Jesus know these parables. Christ, in in these parables in 15, is speaking to the Jewish leadership in response. This is very important that you understand this. In response to their continued criticism of his actions toward those people that the Jewish leadership considered outside the covenant of God, and basically destined to damnation. Okay, that's the way the Jewish leadership looked at those outside the covenant. The setup for this parable begins in chapter 14, when Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal on the Sabbath. You remember this? He does this three times in the Gospel of Luke. While he's at the house, there was a man there, and just bear with me, I know some of you that come on a regular basis, you've heard this before, but there's people here that have not been here before in in our congregation, and so this will help a lot to help them know where we are and follow what, what God is trying to say. So there is a man there at this Sabbath meal that Jesus is attending at this Pharisee's house, and he has a condition called dropsy. And dropsy is a condition that causes abnormal swelling of the body. Well, While they're all there, Jesus asks the Jewish leaders if it was acceptable to heal on the Sabbath, and they all remained silent. Nobody said a word. So he laid his hands on the man, and he was instantly healed from dropsy, and Jesus sent him on his way. Now, Jesus based his healing on the provision in the law that allowed a farm animal to to receive human assistance on the Sabbath if that farm animal became trapped in a ditch or some other type of situation. So Jesus' rationale was shocking and to the point with these Pharisees. So it's okay to rescue an animal on the Sabbath, but it's not okay to heal a human being who is plagued by disease. So Christ's point was that God did not intend to prohibit healing on the Sabbath, The Pharisees had that wrong. Once this scene is over, then this leads Jesus into a series of teachings that would begin at the house of this Pharisee and would continue as he left and began to travel to his next destination. And after studying these passages for weeks and exegetically and following the language and following the themes, I believe that The theme that Jesus is trying to push is losing, losing things. If you do it your way, you lose. If you do it Jesus' way, you gain. So first he says, the high seat of honor, Jesus says, don't pick the high place of honor for when someone more important than you shows up late, you will be humiliated when you are asked to give up your place and move to a lower seat. Jesus says, choose the low place and then be asked to move to a high place. For those that exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So you are humiliated. You lose your prestige when you exalt yourself. Then he said, when you have a banquet… Don't invite all your friends that owe you favors and all that. don't, Don't invite all the people that you're familiar with. When you have a banquet, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And while he's speaking on that particular issue, someone shouts out in the midst of them, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And this provokes Jesus to then give this parable of the great banquet. And he says, the time of this great banquet had come and all that had been notified that were invited were told it was time to come. And all the hosts got in return for this immaculate banquet that he laid out. And these guests that he had forewarned or foreinvited to come to To the banquet, all he received from them were excuses for not coming. I bought a field. I need to go see it. I bought an ox. I want to try them out. I just got married. So the master hears this report and gets angry and sends his servant to invite the lame, the cripple, the blind, and the poor. And they come. And there's still room in the banquet hall. So then he sends his servant out again. And he goes, go outside the city limits. Go into the streets in the countryside and invite everybody who will come. And then we hear that the banquet hall was now full. The last sentence in that passage is, none of those invited will taste my banquet. Again, those that were invited to come had better things to do. They made excuses. So what happened to them? They Lost. They lost their invitation to the banquet. Now we have a more definite transition in 1425. In chapter 14, verse 25, the Bible says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he gives them three statements that describes for them the cost of being his disciple. He says, your first priority in life must be Christ and Christ alone. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, he says, to find your life, you must do what? Lose it. This theme is consistent. This is very significant what Jesus is doing here. Very significant. Then he says when you build a tower, a worldly investment, you count the cost. When a king goes to war against a more powerful army, he counts the cost. So we've got a worldly investment and a worldly battle, and we should count the cost before we say yes to Jesus to be his disciple because if you don't count the cost of the tower, you lose your reputation. If a king doesn't count the cost of war, he may what? Lose the battle then he says, if you're gonna be salty, you better be sure about what you're getting into because we have to stay salty because we don't want to what our saltiness? Lose our saltiness. We must be easy to recognize. We must have distinct and powerful taste. We must offer the cleansing and preserving power of the gospel to others because if our witness becomes salt, saltless, we lose our saltiness and we don't need to lose our saltiness And Jesus says, if you do lose your saltiness, it's no longer any good to put in the soil or the manure pile, but to be trampled by men. Lose, 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 lose. We begin chapter 15. We have not heard the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say anything since the Sabbath meal in chapter 14. And now, as Jesus walks along and teaches, Luke gives us a glimpse into their side talk as Jesus ministers to the crowds. And as he ministers to those who have what to hear? Ears to hear. Chapter 15, verses one and two, he says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This was a true observation. And if this was not Jesus Christ and there were not kingdom priorities being expounded, they would have a legitimate concern about this. But this was the way the Father led the Son of God to do evangelism because Christ came for the sick, amen, not the righteous, And he mingled with tax collectors and sinners because the Pharisees had written them off as outside the covenant of God. They did not understand Christ's purpose in spending time with those that the Pharisees had already written off. And just if you were wondering, Jesus never writes you off, amen? He didn't write this country boy from Mississippi off, I can promise you that. I tried to write him off many times. But he never wrote me off. He consistently came after me. Jesus always pursues you, as the first parable shows. So now we come to this place in 15 where we have these three parables. The perspective, Jesus gives these tax collectors, gives these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders a perspective that they need to see. He gives them the perspective of a shepherd, that would be Jesus, in in losing one of his valuable sheep, the perspective of a woman, which is most likely the church of Jesus Christ, which lost one of her valuable coins, and the perspective of God the Father who had lost one of his valuable sons. So in the parable of the lost sheep, we ask ourselves, where does the sheep belong, brothers and sisters? Where does the sheep belong? In the herd, And this sheep has wandered from the herd. So he told them a parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep? If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. The lost sheep are tax collectors and sinners. They should not be neglected and ignored, much less counted as worthless and despised. That is not the way the shepherd treats his sheep. Every sheep to the shepherd is what? Precious, important and worth something, and so it is worth the sheep is worth the risk of going after it. And then we see the joy as compared to their grumbling. When when the, the shepherd has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulder, on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then we see that is the joy on earth. Then we see the joy in heaven when a sinner comes to repentance. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need. Need no repentance. So again, where do you want to be in this equation? As we read this narrative parable, that is what God is asking you: Where do you see yourself? Are you part of the Jewish leadership that grumble because Jesus is reaching out to the, fair, to the to the tax collectors and the uh, and the, uh, the the sinners, or do you see yourself as reaching out to them? Where do you see yourself? That is the question that he asked. Do you see yourself as grumbling or do you see yourself as joyful when one person comes to know Christ? Boy, is this a great message for Thanksgiving week or what? I mean, it really is. It's a great message for Thanksgiving week. The parable of the lost coin. So where does the coin belong? The sheep belonged with the flock. So where does the coin belong? In the purse or the coin bag. That's where the coin belongs. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So this is quite simple. A woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. So a silver coin is lost from her money bag. Now, there is another alternative. I'm not going to go down this road deeply because it's, not, it's, just, it's just mentioned by a couple of scholars and we don't know that it's true, but it is very interesting to consider. Back in the ancient time when a woman got married, she wore a, a coin band on her head. And this pretty thing that she wore had these these coins, about sometimes it was 10, sometimes it was more, but she had these coins across her head. And then occasionally, what happened to those coins? They fell off. And so it was very important that she find that coin because then there was a gap on her band and it would come across as she was irresponsible or symbolically, she was not fulfilling her spousal obligations. I believe that is kind of a stretch, but I believe it could be where this coin came from. The value of the coin that is lost is about a day's wage. So it's not immaterial, but very important for the future of the financial health of the home. I mean, how would, brothers and sisters, how would the loss of a day's wage affect your life? How would it? Would you look for it? Amen, sure we would. So this woman has 10 coins, she has lost one. So with the shepherd, we have 100 sheep and one went astray. With the woman, we have 10 coins and one was lost. So the coins are representative of what? People, people, value that Christ values. So nine were kept, one was lost. And the one lost coin would represent the tax collectors and the sinners. So think about that. This is a powerful illustration that, that Christ gives us. To think about a coin that is lost and equate that to sinners, tax collectors and sinners. It's very interesting that he would use a coin. Some, here's the statement for you. The coin was ignorant of its being lost. Would you amen that? Ignorant. The silver coin was not a living thing and therefore had no consciousness of its being lost or sought after. The piece of money lost was quite as content to be on the floor or in the dust as it was to be in the purse of its owner. It knew nothing about its being lost and could not know, and it is just so with the sinner who is spiritually dead in sin. His unconsciousness of his state, nor can we make him understand the danger and terror of his condition. This, this metaphor is powerful. When he feels that he is lost, there is already some work of grace in him. When the sinner knows that he is lost, he is no longer content with his condition, but begins to cry out for mercy, which is evidence that the finding work has already began for the lost coin or the lost sinner. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. So we have a lost coin, and where is the lost coin? The lost coin is somewhere where? In the house. Thank God Almighty. I mean, you lose something, at least you know it's in the house. Who here has ever dug in the garbage before looking for keys? Be honest. That is the nastiest, most disgusting place to look for keys, but, but many times they're in there. They're in the garbage. So this lost coin is in the house. The piece of silver was lost, but it was lost in the house, and the woman knew it to be so. If she had lost it in the streets, the probabilities are, she would not have looked for it again, for someone else may have found it. If she had lost it in a river or dropped it in the sea, she might very fairly have concluded that it was gone forever, but evidently she was sure she had lost it in the house. Is it not a comforting consolation to know that this coming week you may have a lost coin and that lost coin comes to your what house the lost coin was in the house the woman in this parable most likely represents the holy spirit that is going after the lost coin meaning that people that are not saved. So how does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit washes and convicts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So this woman realizes she has lost one of her coins, and what does she do? She begins to look for the coin. Hebrews 4.12, "'For the word of God is living and active, "'sharper than any two-edged sword, "'piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, "'of joints and of marrow, "'and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart.'" So she, as the Holy Spirit, begins to look for the lost coin, which is a lost sinner, and she is doing this through evangelistic methods, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So it seems the second she realizes the coin was missing, an urgency struck her soul. And she immediately began to search for the coin. And when you live in a house in the ancient Near East, during this time, do you have electricity? So you must use a lamp. And she lights a lamp. Why? To be able to see in the dark. The coin is also metal and would reflect the light, making it easier to find. Now, how ironic is it that she lights a lamp. What is that symbolic of? Christ, the gospel truth. I mean, where have we heard that term before? Lamp, gospel truth. And that gospel light, when shined in the darkness, draws out those who have ears to hear. So as the woman lights the lamp and begins to search the house, the lamp shines light into every corner and crevice in the house where the lost coin may be. To find it. And God's Holy Spirit does the exact thing, does the exact same thing. God's Word does the exact same thing. The Word of God is preached. I will always be be convinced all of my life that the reason why many people do not like the deep exposition of the Word of God is because it's inescapable. You can go to the Bible on your own and pick and choose passages that don't speak to your sin. But when you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through whole books of the Bible, there is no escape from the Word of God. None. It is a light that shines into the deepest, darkest crevices of your heart and soul and brings out your sin so that you can be confronted with the truth. And I believe many people that do not want to see the light and do not want to come into the light they shy away from God's word. Or they pick specific passages that do not speak to their sin so they can avoid the conviction and continue on as immature babes in Christ instead of being convicted and changing and allowing themselves to be formed into the full image of Jesus and the sanctifying effect of the Holy Spirit of God. She lights the lamp so she can sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a what to my feet, a lamp to my feet. Your word is a what to my path, a light to my path. It is the guiding light to guide us to all truth. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So she realizes this coin is gone. She lights her lamp, it illuminates the house, and she begins to look for the coin. And not only does she light the lamp and walk around and look, what else does she do? She sweeps. We got any sweepers in the church today? Amen. Who sweeps? Be honest. All right, ladies, all of y'all put down your hands. I'm fixing to do you a big favor, okay? All the guys in here that have picked up a broom within the past month, raise your hand. Oh, no way! No way! I am blown away. You bunch of servant-minded guys, that's fantastic. Awesome. Now we'll take the next step and do the dishes after Thanksgiving dinner, amen? amen. Okay, fantastic, man. That's, that's what I, that, that just blew, that ruined my sermon for the next, for the next two pages. <laughs> just took it away. No, I'm kidding, it didn't. Just, just joking around. She sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. So the woman had lost her piece of silver, and in order to find it, she lights the lamp, And she sweeps for it, which proves that it had fallen into a dusty place, fallen to the earth, where it might be hidden and concealed amid rubbish and dirt. This is Spurgeon, by the way. Rubbish should have tipped you off. Amen. Every man of Adam born is a piece of silver lost, fallen, dishonored, and some are buried amid foulness and dust. If we should drop many pieces of money, they would fall into different positions. One might fall into actual mire and be lost there. Another might fall upon a carpet, a cloth, or a clean, well-polished floor and be left there. But they are all equally what? Yes. Boy, Spurgeon has a way with words. Amen? Man, this is how the Holy Spirit works. God knows your response to the gospel, and he will get the gospel to you one way or another. No matter how lost you are, no matter the depth of the crevice of the dirt, you will be found by him, and you will be saved. Amen? Now, there will never be a soul found till the Holy Spirit seeks after it. He is the great soul finder. The heart will continue in the dark until he comes with his illuminating power. He is the owner. He possesses it. And he alone can effectually seek after it. The God to whom the soul belongs must seek the soul, but he does it by his church. For souls belong to the church too. They are sons and daughters of the chosen mother. They are her citizens and treasures. For this reason, the church must personally seek after souls. Now, why would Spurgeon say that? Notice the parable of the lost coin. Did she delegate that task to anybody? She did it herself. It is our responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ to seek out lost souls. Amen? All of us. It's not just your seminary seminary folks that are supposed to do that. It's not just your licensed and ordained clergy. All believers, all true believers are to look and evangelize lost people, everyone. And God, believe it or not, I know it may be hard to believe, but God will lead you directly to them if you are willing to do it and go. He will direct you straight to them. He will direct you straight to those that have ears to hear the gospel. He will, because he is God, and that's what he does. She cannot delegate her work to anybody. The woman did not pay a servant to sweep the house. She swept it herself. Her eyes were much better than a servant's eyes, for the servant's eyes would only look after somebody else's money and perhaps would not see it. But the woman would look after her own money, and she would be certain to light upon it if it were anywhere within her sight. Therefore, she lights the lamp, and she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully until she finds it. There was a Mennonite girl many years ago that, um, that Angie and I, we met when we were in, uh, still in, in Indianola, Mississippi. And I think we had been connected to them because they had a youth choir uh, that we had seen before, and we got connected to them through that. And I don't know, who, who here knows what Mennonites are? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, the, the, the young women uh, at a very young age uh, are, are given the responsibility to clean houses, or at least in our, in our area they were. And let me tell you, could they clean houses? Give me a witness. Amen? I mean, phenomenal. So we were very blessed, and Valerie was the one that came to clean our house. And Valerie was fantastic. I mean, Angie was like spoiled rotten. I mean, right out of the chute, this lady was so thorough. Well, when we got married, uh, we wanted to do something different with our wedding bands. Uh, She got uh, a stone from my grandmother that was a family heirloom, and so we put it in a setting that she wanted. And then we both decided to get platinum, and I didn't realize how expensive it was when we decided that, but anyway. So, I had a platinum wedding ring, and on the inside, she engraved it Shelby and Angie 92201. It was really special. And I wore that ring. I don't have that ring on now because I almost burnt, burned my finger off when I was doing mechanic work, so I wear a rubber one now. But when we lived in that house, for a while when we, after we first got married, that, that heavy ring bothered me, so I would take it off when I went to bed and I would just put it on my bedside table, just like that. Well, somehow it came up missing. I don't know what happened. It came up missing. And I'm like, Angie, have you seen my wedding ring? She's like, no, honey, I hadn't seen it. I was like, well, well, let's look for it. So we looked for it. And guess what? We didn't find it. And so, I mean, after a couple weeks, maybe a month went on, and I'm like getting really nervous because, I mean, I'm, I don't have a wedding ring. I had my daddy's, I had my daddy's old gold one uh, that when he died, I, I got it. But we thought, you know, we, we thought it might have had, you know, mystical power. So I didn't wear it. I'm just joking. <laughs> but, but so I didn't wear it a whole lot. But, but I did, and so, um, so I, I'm in a real fix. And so I called my insurance company, and I asked them about replacing the ring. They're like, well, no, you, you know, you, you didn't put it on the schedule. That's how I learned about schedules. Can you give me a witness? And so basically, I called the, 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 the jewelry shop to find out what it was going to cost to replace that ring, and he told me $1,200. <clears throat> That was a little bit more than a day's wage, amen? (laughs) Just a little bit more than a day's wage. And so I'm kind of becoming to the reality that my wedding ring is gone, and I'm just going to have to wear my dad's gold wedding ring for the rest of my life. And then I go to work, and I come home one day, and guess what is sitting on the kitchen table in our house? My wedding ring. (laughs) And I said... Where'd this come from? And Angie said, Valerie found it. And I said, you're kidding me. She said, no, 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 no. You know how Valerie cleans the house, right? She pulls everything around from the wall. She even takes a vacuum cleaner and like the grooves in that hardwood floor that the dirt gets down into, she pulls the furniture out and vacuums the grooves in the wood floor. And that's where she found it. She found it underneath the bed in Logan's room, wasn't it? I think it was Logan's room. Found it, and I found my ring. Now, do you think I celebrated? Hallelujah, amen, because I didn't have to spend $1,200 to get a new wedding ring. But that's the purpose that, that Jesus, that's where Jesus is going with this, is the celebration of finding something that is lost. And souls are far more valuable than a coin and far more valuable than a ring. Amen? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin." Now, this is one of the things that makes me think this may have been a headband of coins that she's talking about. I mean, how many of you, when you lose something, broadcast the fact that you've lost it to all your friends and neighbors? In fact, we try to keep it quiet because I don't look like a dummy that I lost my wedding ring, right? But in this case, she's obviously been talking about it. And then when she finds it, she celebrates it, and the other people come over and celebrate with her. So this is a a really big deal that she has found this. So it's wonderful. Then in verse 10... We see something else. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, you say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Isn't that what we heard with the parable of the lost sheep? Not exactly. The parable of the lost sheep said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here with the lost coin, he says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what's the difference? Well, I'll tell you what I think the difference is. I think that angels understand a whole lot better than we do. About the perils that exist beyond this life and I think that angels know the time and the day when a whole bunch of other angels did what rebelled and were cast into hell and so angels know better than we do that there's two spiritual realms that are that are at war And so when Satan loses one of his possible prizes and they come over to the kingdom of God, who rejoices more than anyone? Angels. Because they know that's one less person going to hell to be with Satan and his legions. That's powerful stuff. And let's close with this illustration how many of you know that I love cars? <laughs> Everybody, I have loved them since I was a teenager. Loved them, and I have always been pretty good. And my Angie and my children are not going to believe this because I'm, I've been a different guy since I've been since I've had a family. But when I was single and I had my vehicles, they were kept spotless. Can any of y'all relate? To, don't quit laughing at me, Dave Flynn. They were kept spot. They're not now, okay? They're not now. I mean, I've got four kids. It's just, it's just a different day in my life, okay? <laughs> but back in those times, back in those times, my car was kept in immaculate condition except for one place, and that place was the center console where drinks were kept, right? And also, there was something else that was kept there, and what was kept there? Spare change. Whenever you got changed, you took it and you dropped it into the console. Now, that's all fine and good. But over time of driving around and drinking co-colas and drinking coffee and all this kind of stuff, little spill here and a little spill there and a little spill here and a little spill there, that little tray full of coins becomes a (laughs) nasty, sticky, black, disgusting, tarry, stinky mess just mess. And so, every now and then, you'd take it and clean it out, and you would be surprised how much money would be in there, right? I mean, you would think it wouldn't be much, and then you take it out, and it's like 4 or $5 worth of quarters. You're like, wow! But you take it inside, and you clean them off. I'd spread them out and, you know, clean them off real good, and then, then they were ready to spend. What this parable says to me, and what it says, period, in truth is that that's how God sees us. When we come into this world, we are marred by sin. And it all depends on whatever your life trajectory is, what type of sin you become more drawn to. For me, it was the nightlife, it was was drinking, it was getting into the drug scene, it was all that kind of stuff. That was the mire. That was the stickiness. That was the nastiness that I was involved in, that God freed me from. Somebody else, it could be careerism or idolatry over something else. But all of us, as coins, over time, we get nasty. We just get nasty, lost and nasty. And then Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, brings the word of God to us in truth, we get convicted of our sins, God finds us, sanctifies us, and makes us whole. That's the God we serve. He wants you, he wants me, he wants all of us to impact this culture, beginning with our own homes and extending out to family and beyond. He wants us to see everyone with the eyes of Jesus, and to know that every person, no matter how sticky, no matter how nasty, no matter how covered up with sin, has value to God. We don't write them off. We don't write them off involved in certain sins because God can save them. God can cleanse them. God can make them whole. Now, Christians that that go that direction, I've already already explained that to you last message. There's a different way that you handle professing believers that are heading in that direction. We're talking about folks that have never come to Christ to begin with. That's what God… That's how God wants us to see those that are in our midst this next week. The parable of the lost coin. He wants to take us from being lost and dirty, and nasty, and He wants to take us, and He wants to give us new life, and make us clean, and give us new purpose. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we dismiss here in a few moments, and go our separate ways, uh, we won't see each other again until next Sunday, most likely, and there'll be several days in between today and that day. And, and Lord, I know because it's just, just the way it is that every family has difficulties. I don't know any family that's perfect. I don't know any family that doesn't have some type of, of struggle from the past that continues to rear its head in the, in the present. And, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to have the heart and eyes of Jesus as we come into this next week and we come through Christmas. And this is my prayer every year, uh, every year for myself and for, and for anyone, Lord, because you are powerful enough, powerful enough, to bring it all back together and make it anew. And Lord, I pray, I pray today that if there's one here that sees themselves as that coin, lost, dirty, may your Holy Spirit, may the Word of God bring new life to them and take them and make them whole. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.